Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of Navara Live. I'm your host Dahlia Gabriel and boy do we have a jam-packed show for you today. I'll be joined throughout the show by the smooth-talking Michael Walker. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing very well. I'm feeling um, underdressed. You and Moira are both really putting me to shame when it comes to like the power suits you've been wearing for, <laughs> for Navarra Live. I think I need to up my game. Well, you know, I mean, dress to impress. Our audience deserves nothing less. In this show, we'll be covering the institutional mess that is the Met Police. Uh, another report telling us to get off our asses and do something about climate breakdown. And the long-awaited drop of the Partygate dossier. On to our first story. Another day, another damning report on the Metropolitan Police. An investigation led by Baroness Louise Casey has declared the Met to be institutionally racist, sexist and homophobic. It concluded that the Met can, quote, no longer presume that it has the permission of the people of London to police them. The investigation found that there is endemic sexism within the force, with 12% of women officers saying they have directly experienced sexual harassment or assault at work. And much of the time, this came in the form of so-called initiation rituals, where officers reported being urinated on and sexually assaulted while showering. Within the force, Casey also found a number of racist incidents committed against ethnic minority police officers. She quotes one officer who said this. There have been a number of incidents where baptized Sikh officers are picked on. One officer had his beard cut because an officer thought it was funny. Another officer had his turban put into a shoebox because they thought it was funny. A Muslim officer reported this. I found bacon left in my boots in my, inside my locked locker. I was horrified but kept an open mind as to who it could be. I was hoping to identify who the culprit was and take appropriate action. I didn't want to be branded as a person who played the race card and out of fear of reprisals did not tell anyone at the time. This begs the question, if this is how they treat their own, what hope is there for ordinary people from black and ethnic minority communities? On this, Baroness Casey found that black Londoners continue to be over-policed. She specifically highlighted the deployment of stop and search as undermining the legitimacy, trust and consent that police have amongst black people. This comes despite former Met Police Commissioner Cressida Dick claiming just three years ago that the label of institutionally racist given 25 years ago by the McPherson report was no longer applicable. In 2020, she told the Home Affairs Committee this. Back to the, uh, you know, how far has the Met come? I think we've come an enormous way. I, 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 I say to other people, if you want to call us institutionally racist, that is a matter for you. What I, I don't, it's not a label I find helpful, as I think I've told this committee before. Uh, I don't think we're collectively failing in all the ways described in, the, in Sir William's definition. Um, and I, and, I, and I, I, so I don't think it's collective failure. I don't think it's a you know, massive systemic problem. I don't think it's institutionalised. And more to the point, I think we have come such a very, very, very long way. Awkward. The recommendations put forward by the report include overhauling the misconduct process and introducing end-to-end -end vetting standards, which officers would be subject to throughout their serving career. She also called for specific attention to be paid to specialist firearms units, which had some of the biggest issues regarding culture, behaviour and practices. This includes effectively disbanding the Parliamentary and Diplomatic Protection Unit where murderer Wayne Cousins and serial rapist David Carrick served. 
To talk about the findings of the report and what it means for those affected, I spoke earlier to Ife Thompson, a lawyer and community organizer who works on police accountability. I asked her why, after years of reports showing the Met Police has systemic issues with racism, things aren't getting better. It's really important to look at the roots of policing. Policing in this country is a colonial institution. The Met Police Force was literally created by Robert Peel, who um, created the Irish Police Force as a colonial entity. So when you look at the Met Police in the UK, it's got that colonial legacy, right? Um, And then even in terms of the colonies, how they were policed, it was, again, very much linked to this idea of trying to stop any uprisings. So the, the way in which we know policing, the way it developed globally, was linked to colonization. And we know black and brown communities were the ones being um, policed in, in these colonies. So inherently, our communities, have, since the exception of policing, have always been watched, monitored, surveilled, right? You have the same communities that have come over um, in uh, 40s, Windrush, etc., um, and ever since we've got here, the racism, the colonial imperialism and the legacy of anti-blackness has been very much systemic in the way our communities have been policed. And I would say, particularly, it hasn't changed because it wasn't designed to serve our communities. It was always designed to surveil, to control um, and to police us in the way that it does. So I don't think a system that was never created for with black people in mind and our liberation in mind can it ever serve us. So I think, yeah, I think if we look at the nature of policing and what it's for and how our communities are viewed, particularly through, through a lens of deviance um, and through a lens of the requirement to uh, be surveilled and to be contained because we are deviant, you're going to always have the same effect. Paul Duro spoke about the myth of black criminality. Even the policing practices that the police have been taught actually legitimizes anti-blackness and the idea that certain communities need to be over-policed. Um, so I think there's a long line of um, theories, of research, um, and, and the legacy, I guess, of white supremacy and, and colonization um, that relates to how black communities are perceived and then um, ultimately policed. And obviously, given that that long history, one thing I think is quite interesting about this moment, particularly since the murder of Sarah Everard, is the Met Police seem to be uncharacteristically forthcoming with evidence of their own failures. You know, this has always been the case, but the Met Police has always denied that there was an issue. Um, but now they are they are being more for, more forthcoming in terms of their own failures in a way that we haven't seen before. Why do you think they are doing this now? There's two schools of thought that can really allow us to understand the situation that we are in right now. Um, I think one is Afro-pessimism. Afro-pessimists really provide an understanding of how society is built on anti-blackness. And because society is built on anti-blackness, there is um, a sort of indifference or actually it seems to be the function of society um, is very much has a basis of relying and actually continuing anti-black violence. And because of that, because society is, is built on that, it's endemic in this in the West, particularly in the UK, uh, what you see is a complete indifference to black suffering, to police brutality against black communities because of this endemic nature of anti-blackness in society. So that's why you can have a report like McPherson come out and say that the police are institutionally racist and nothing changes. That's why you can have 
you know, um, Institute of Registration have been recording deaths in police custody since 1991. Um, and their research shows of the 509 deaths um, between then and 2014, half of those have been of black people. So you can see, again, a complete indifference to black life. And the only reason you can have a society that can um, turn a blind eye um, and actually see that anti-blackness and, and black suffering is a somewhat part and parcel of black life in this country is you have to have a complete indifference to uh, black communities. Whereas what you see um, now when looking particularly at Sarah Everard murder is that this type of policing that was reserved for black communities, this type of policing that ensured that you know, black life didn't matter, right, is now seeping into the white middle class um, persons in society, particularly white middle class women. What you then have is a complete detour, a complete change um, in their approach to policing because now that violence is escaping the communities that it's reserved for. So what we then see is white supremacy um, in in full fold. It's it's as if only when this is an issue affecting white communities and white people, then we will change. Then we will become forthcoming about the issues at hand. And I think it's very pertinent because the Met Police um, and policing in general is overwhelmingly white. So there's, there's a level of empathy that can be seen because these uh, white women that are being attacked by the police, it could be your sister, it could be your brother, um, your um, wife, it could be a sibling. There's a level of empathy there that isn't reserved for black people. And I think that the scholarship of pessimism, the way in which black life is perceived and, and actually curtailed in this country, um, is a really good way of understanding why there is no empathy um, and the perceptions of black communities as being deviant means that we have never afforded that sort of um respectability but also that source of empathy and I think there's there's a certain level of empathy now because it is expanding to um, white people in this country this the level of police violence white women in particular and I think that's why the Met Police are becoming very forthcoming because it's now something that's closer to home whereas when it was affecting black communities that wasn't the case. Let's take a look at some of the reactions to the Casey report now. Met Commissioner Mark Rowley spoke to Sky News where he said this. This is a very upsetting read. You can't read this report and not be um, upset, embarrassed um, and humbled by some of what's been said. The one thing that's heartening in it for me, the evidence in this report comes from the men and women in my organisation who care deeply, who want us to be better, who want us to be different. And it's with my resolve and their resolve that we will reform the culture of the Met and we will do better for the people of London. Do you accept the full findings of the report? Uh, we accept the findings of the report. Um, as I say, it's, uh, it's, it's deeply worrying. Sir Mark, do you accept the full findings of the report? We accept the, I accept the findings of the report, absolutely. The full findings of the report? I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understand the, the you point know exactly what I mean, Sir Mark. We're talking about your suggestions that you don't accept um, that your force is institutionally racist. I absolutely accept the diagnosis that Louise Casey comes up with. We have um, racist, misogynists and homophobes in the organisation. And it's not just about individuals. We have systemic failings, management failings and cultural failings. 
The reason, and I respect um, Louise using that term, the reason I don't use it, um, I think it's a very ambiguous term. Your, your viewers would have different interpretations of what it means. No, it's, and it's very also straightforward. I purposefully looked it but up, I, Sir Mark. Sir Mark, if I may, I purposefully looked it up in the dictionary this morning. Uh, institutionally means uh, convention or norm in a culture. And that's what uh, Louise Casey thinks is happening in the Met. You tell me why it's not. So that, that you, you've proven my point, I'm sorry to say, because um, the definition you pulled out is not the one that William McPherson used, it's not the one that Louise Casey uses. Everyone uses different definitions. It's pointless arguing about definitions. We have a real problem here. We have misogyny, homophobia, and racism in the organization, and we're gonna root it out. I've already grown our capability to do that. We're absolutely determined to take this on. We're removing officers more quickly. We're tackling these issues. And meanwhile, day in and day out, I've got the officers of the force who are coming forward and they are absolutely determined to tackle this. The vast majority are as embarrassed and angered by this as I am. In response to that interview, Shadow Policing Minister Sarah Jones said this. I accept the findings of the no, report. No, 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 I'm talking he about accepts the findings of the report. He, uh, he cherry picks uh, it. Uh, has said he will accept the findings of the report. No, he didn't. He said in that. Full. No, he didn't. He, he absolutely didn't say that. He didn't say that. He said he wouldn't accept them in full. I said he said he would accept the findings of the report. I said in full, and he said no. Well, look, we can't fiddle about with the with the, the language of what he said. He needs to fundamentally change the cultures and the structures within the Met. There are uh, a raft of recommendations that go to the very heart of what policing is about. And I think fundamentally what Louise is saying is that policing attracts the best of humanity, but it will also attract predators and people who want to do harm. And in the same way that we have changed systems in education or in medicine, uh, we need to do the same in policing. We need to make sure there aren't predatory people allowed to exist in the Met and to continue to operate and be metropol metropolitan officers. But she's also said we have to bring back neighbourhood policing. She said we have to look at the protection teams that are, 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 are there to solve rape and sexual abuse. And she has officers in her report saying rape is effectively decriminalised. This, this goes Let way me beyond. Back. Let me bring you back to my um, question. Should he accept the full findings of the report? Yeah, absolutely, he should accept the findings of the report. The and my understanding findings is of the report. that he has. Well, he hasn't, because I had him oh, on the okay. programme this morning well, and he I, didn't. Forgive me, I didn't I That's didn't fine. You, I'm afraid I have to take my word for it. I'll yeah. watch it back on YouTube. So Labour's potential Minister for Policing also struggling to say she accepts the institutional part of the findings. These people are just obsessed with bad apples. Uh, so the report was also the subject of a statement in Parliament. Uh, Home Secretary Suella Braverman said this. So on the topic of national standards, I'm working with chief constables on our programme to drive up standards and improve culture across police forces at a national level. On the topic of institutional racism, Mr Speaker, I agree with Sir Mark Rowley. It's not a helpful term to use. It's an ambiguous, contested and politically charged term that is much misused and risks making it harder for officers to win back the trust of communities. Sir Mark is committed to rooting out discrimination in all forms from the Met. And I believe that is how the Met Police respond to the issues which is important, not whether they accept a label. Braverman there saying that using the word institutional makes it harder for the public to trust the police. Well, maybe it should be harder if they're not 
trustworthy. Once again, it's placing the blame for the crisis in public trust on the public rather than the police that are behaving in ways that mean they're not, they don't deserve to be trusted. Anyway, only Shadow Home Secretary Yvette Cooper seemed prepared to back the report in full. The findings on institutional misogyny, racism and homophobia are based on evidence and clear criteria that Baroness Casey has set out for measuring change with recommendations. The Home Secretary rightly says she wants discrimination tackled in all its forms, but she has been telling police forces the opposite and telling them not to focus on those issues. So where is her plan now to turn that around? Where is the Home Office plan in response to this? On standards on neighbourhood policing, on violence against women and girls, and on systemic or institutional discrimination. Where are those plans? Michael, why is everyone so scared of using the word institutional, despite the fact that this report shows that a lot of the British public actually are now on board with that analysis? Mm. Yeah, I mean, yes, I've heard some very unconvincing explanations today on the radio. So I, I'm not sure if it was Mark Rowley or another sort of senior policeman sort of saying uh, the, the public understanding of institutional racism is that it means that every police officer is racist. And I, I just think that's a bit ridiculous. You know, that's not what people understand institutional racism to mean. I think the clip you showed, Mark Rowley, Mark Rowley sorry, saying that different people will understand different things by it. You know, it's, it's not that we can all agree on this precise definition that everyone knows what it means. Fair enough. But it, it speaks to something which I think everyone can understand, which is that there is an institutional problem, that this organisation as an institution, and that means because of multiple people within it, and because of especially how it is dealt with when an instance of sort of racism, homophobia or sexism occurs. And I think that's what screams out at you from this report is that it, it's not about bad apples. It's about there being loads and loads of people who are misogynist, racist, sexist, homophobic, and them getting away with it. That's the key thing. And I, I think what's intelligent about this report is, is, is that Louise Casey sort of says, um, what we need to recognize is that lots of people do join the police for bad reasons. You know, some people join the police for very good reasons. They want to protect people. They want to sort of put themselves um, on the front line. And she sort of talks about the sacrifices that some police officers make. But it, you will have uh, a number of people putting themselves forward to become police officers because they do want to dominate over people. They want to abuse that position. And that means that we need to have sort of extra, extraordinary sort of uh, vetting procedures. And I mean, surveillance is maybe the wrong word to use, but sort of an ongoing vetting, essentially. So you're constantly looking at, are we staffing this organization with too many people who are trying to abuse their positions? I mean, obviously, one person is too many, but you know, you can see how it become institutional. You've got loads of people who just want to abuse their positions. That's clearly what's happened now. Um, and, and I think that recognition should um, lead to some changes. I mean, it would probably help if the police accepted that this was institutional. Um, I think the proof there will be in, you know, what actual changes do they make? I think there is also a danger when it comes to sort of, if we focus too much on this word, like there's some real concrete appalling detail, which will be actually more shocking to the public than whatever word we use here, right? So you can say the police is institutionally misogynist. Sure. I mean, that that's powerful. But Louise Casey was talking today on the News Agents podcast. She was telling a story about a police officer on British transport who had got his penis out and was masturbating in front of an old couple who sort of asked him to stop. He goes, he, he went and locked himself in a toilet and came out after a different station and 
did it again when there were children present, right? So, so these stories, these stories of what people are doing in the police, the kind of people that have joined, the kind of things that people are getting away with, actually probably is more powerful than whatever, whatever word we use. So I think the question is, you know, the more powerful question to, to Rowley is, say, how can you guarantee that this is not going to happen again, right? And then he needs to lay out the various um, sort of vetting procedures or whatever, the various accountability mechanisms, which means that that kind of thing can't happen again. This is really extreme, right? So I almost think that we should probably focus on the concrete things which have been discovered instead of obsessing over definitions. Although, of course, I think Louise Casey has proved that the police are institutionally racist, misogynist and homophobic. Yeah, and I think that the 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 point about calling this institutional, and I know that, you know, Michael, we we disagree on this, but it's about saying that this isn't just about individuals making the choices to be violent within this institution, although that is what's taking place. But actually what what I would argue and what I think a lot of people are increasingly feeling is that the things that the police are deployed to actually do are not things that police have the tools to do, right? And so you see the police being put on the front line of, for example, the mental health crisis, but the tools that the police have are tools of violence and surveillance and repression and containment. And particularly when you look at the kind of legacy, you know, the, the, the raison d'etre of the police, which is to essentially contain and surveil working class people, it becomes really difficult, I think, for me at least, to imagine, you know, a vetting procedure that could actually distinguish between the harms that the the very obvious harms that the police are doing in 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 these examples but also the kind of more mundane harms you know that 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 the police are are engaging in particularly when it comes to to black people the indignity of the surveillance the indignity of being treated as if you are a community that needs to be that is essentially guilty until um until proven innocent and you know the fact is is that you know there is no police force in the world that has ever existed that hasn't been engaged in some forms of harmful police activity, you know, particularly when it comes to like breaking up movements and, you know, countering kind of like, and let God forbid there be, you know, political uprising, you know, that's when the police are deployed sort of most um, aggressively. Right. So let's go on to our next story. Humanity, act immediately or it'll be too late. That's the message from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, also known as the IPCC. It has now delivered the final part of its sixth climate change assessment report, called the Synthesis Report. This final part is very likely to be the last one issued by the IPCC, while there's still time to limit global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees centigrade. The full report has been eight years in the making and involved the efforts of hundreds of the world's leading scientists. This is UN Secretary Antonio Guterres introducing the report. Humanity is on thin ice and that ice is melting fast. As today's report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, details, humans are responsible for virtually all global heating over the last 200 years. The rate of temperature rise in the last half century is the highest in 2,000 years. Concentrations of carbon dioxide are at their highest in at least 2 million years. The climate time bomb is ticking. But today's IPCC report is a how-to guide to defuse the climate time bomb. It is a survival guide for humanity. 
As it shows, the 1.5 degree limit is achievable, but it will take a quantum leap in climate action. This report is a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts by every country and every sector and on every time frame. In short, our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. The details of the report makes for pretty grim reading. It finds this. Human activities, principally through emissions of greenhouse gases, have unequivocally caused global warming. With global surface temperature reaching 1.1 degrees above 1850 to 1900 levels in 2011 to 2020, global greenhouse gas emissions have continued to increase with unequal historical and ongoing contributions arising from unsustainable energy use, land use and land use change, lifestyles and patterns of consumption and production across regions between and within countries and among individuals. Widespread and rapid changes in the atmosphere, ocean, cryosphere and biosphere have occurred. Human-caused climate change is already affecting many weather and climate extremes in every region across the globe. This has led to widespread adverse impacts and related losses and damages to nature and people. Vulnerable communities who have historically contributed the least to current climate change are disproportionately affected. The report also says that current greenhouse gas commitments made by nation states still mean that it is likely that temperatures will increase by 1.5 degrees Celsius in the 21st century. That's the point at which our damage to the climate will become irreversible. Even worse, our current commitments will make it harder to limit climate change to below 2 degrees Celsius. This chart shows how far we have to go. The red line shows what will happen if we stick to the set of policies that have already been implemented. Greenhouse gas emissions will continue to rise, only leveling off around 2060. By the end of the century, global temperatures will have risen around 3.2 degrees centigrade. The blue line shows that if we want to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century, we'd need to implement policies that cut global greenhouse gas emissions by two-thirds by 2040. And even to limit warming to two degrees Celsius by 2100, that's the green line, we'd need to half global greenhouse gas emissions in the next 16 years. So what can we expect to happen if we don't manage to limit temperature rises to 1.5 degrees? These charts show the number of days per year when heat and humidity will be so high that human lives will be at risk. The left-hand image shows that if temperatures rise above 1.7 degrees Celsius, but stay below 2.3 degrees Celsius, then large areas along the equator in South America, West Africa, Southeast Asia, and Oceania are likely to experience more than 200 potentially deadly days per year. On our current trajectory, represented by the middle image, when temperatures rise between 2.4 and 3.1 degrees, many of those areas will experience potentially fatal temperatures every day of the year. And the area set to experience more than 200 deadly days per year spreads much further north and south. That's just the direct effect the climate is expected to have on human lives. There are also indirect effects like food production, these charts show the projected effects of temperature rises on global maize production. The first image shows temperature rises between 1.6 and 2.5 degrees Celsius. 
So some areas of Northern Europe and Asia, Southern Africa and North America would see a small increase around 10% in maize yields. But those would be offset by losses of between 3 and 20% in Central Asia and Africa and North and Central America. If temperatures rise between 3.3 and 4.8 degrees seen in the central image, maize production will suffer enormous losses, between 20 and 35% in most maize growing regions around the world. So what's the plan to develop greater international cooperation, more ambitious greenhouse gas emissions targets, and a fairer distribution of effort across different economies? Antonio Guterres laid out his plan. I have humanity is on thin ice, and that ice is melting fast. As today's report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, details, humans are responsible for virtually all global heating over the last 200 years. The rate of temperature rise in the last half century is the highest in 2,000 years. Concentrations of carbon dioxide are at their highest in at least 2 million years. The climate time bomb is ticking. But today's IPCC report is a how-to guide to defuse the climate time bomb. It is a survival guide for humanity. As it shows, the 1.5 degree limit is achievable, but it will take a quantum leap in climate action. This report is a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts by every country and every sector and on every time frame. In short, our world needs climate action on all fronts, everything, everywhere, all at once. Emerging economies must commit to reaching net zero as close as possible to 2050, and again, the limit they should all aim to respect. A number have already made the 2050 commitment. And this is the moment for all G20 members to come together in a joint effort, pooling their resources and scientific capacities, as well as their proven and affordable technologies through the public and private sectors to make carbon neutrality a reality by 2050. Every country must be part of the solution. Demanding others move first only ensures humanity comes last. Hmm, a climate solidarity pact. Feels like we've heard it all before. And it doesn't fill you with much hope when The Guardian reports this. The final section of AR6 was the summary for policymakers, written by IPCC scientists but scrutinised by representatives of governments around the world, who can and did push for changes. The Guardian was told that in the final hours of deliberations at the Swiss resort of Interlaken over the weekend, the large Saudi Arabian delegation of at least 10 representatives pushed at several points for the weakening of messages on fossil fuels and the insertion of references to carbon capture and storage, touted by some as a remedy for fossil fuel use, but not yet proven to work at scale. When the owner of the world's second largest oil reserves starts trying to downplay the science, it really doesn't inspire a lot of confidence in what are essentially voluntary pacts. Michaela Loach is a climate activist and author of the upcoming book, It's Not That Radical, Climate Action to Transform Our World. Earlier today, I spoke to her about the latest stage in the IPCC's reporting, and I began by asking her how much faith she had in the UN's efforts to achieve the level of, glo the level of global cooperation required to stave off irreversible climate change. 
I think the UN is part of um, kind of a multiplicity of kind of tactics that we need to achieve this. We we do need a space where everyone can come together, different nations can come together um, and talk about this as it is a global crisis and it needs kind of global collaboration for it. But I don't believe that the UN will save us. And I don't believe that we should like be hoping for that to happen or kind of relying on that happening. Um, I think we need other kind of kind of spaces for convening of nations to come together, similar to um, the Cochabamba kind of um, convening that happened, which was coordinated by Abel Morales' Bolivia, where he got a lot of nations in Abiyala, which is like the indigenous name for um, Latin America, to come together and talk about what their demands are for climate justice and climate reparations. Um, I think spaces like that especially for the most impacted nations to come together and coordinate their goals to then go into these kind of UN spaces and work as a block to push through what's really, really needed um, are so important too. Um, but I don't think we should kind of sit back and, and believe that the UN will save us because that's definitely not going to happen. The IPCC is quite clear on what needs to happen, you know, cutting greenhouse gases by two thirds, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't really get into the politics of it, you know, of actually outlining how we can get there, you know, providing a roadmap. So what does that roadmap look like for you? I think that it looks like looking to countries that have already kind of been on that roadmap to getting a, um, a government in power or to having movements that have gained power um, and really caused changes. So we can look to countries like Colombia, where um, after 200 years of elite rule um, by capitalist governments that existed to kind of only represent corporations' interests and especially fossil fuel companies' interests. Um, instead, through the Soy Porque Somos and Pacto Histórico, this like left-wing pact um, that was fought through by Gustavo Petro and Francis Marquez and the majority of people in Colombia, um, they now have a government that is has committed to try and keep fossil fuels in the ground um, to dismantle capitalism and, and build eco-socialism and, and a new world. Um, but that was fought from the ground up. Um, it wasn't handed down from above. And that was fought by kind of pushing through an agenda that offered um, a really like improved and better world. Um, and a lot of that struggle came as a result of a cost of living crisis in Colombia and people kind of organizing around the material needs of people um, and pushing through, yeah, something that's more attractive than what we currently have. And so I think we can look to folks who've already done this, even though obviously our contexts are, are quite different um, and realize that it's kind of going to have to be through a mass movement, I think, of people coming together um, that will really kind of push through change um, rather than us kind of waiting for it to be handed down to us. And what kind of institutions do you think that people can participate in or, or work through in order to achieve that? Joining a local group or movement is a great way to start because there will be people in there that have so many, so much expertise um, on how we can, from our different kind of angles, um, be tackling this crisis. So I think the first thing that I would say is just like just join people who are already doing this work in in your local community, whether it is like a Green New Deal Rising group or if it's a um, there's a group called Prayler in London that do really incredible work with diaspora communities. Um, just joining one of these groups that already exists and then finding out there how can you use your very special and, and particular skills um, to start building power that will really kind of cause the transformation we need. In Britain, we're in quite a unique space in the sense that, you know, that it's one of the financial capitals of the world. We have, uh, you know, all the insurance companies that are like underwriting these fossil fuel projects are headquartered in, in London. So with that in mind, uh, where do you think climate campaigners, particularly in Britain, should be focusing their energies? 
we have to realize that in in britain we are in the core of the empire still um a lot of the kind of worst impacts of the climate crisis or the kind of industries that are creating and producing this crisis um have their headquarters um in the uk and have a lot of the concentration of their kind of wealth in the uk and there's a lot that we can do to to disrupt that and so that means that looking at especially the fossil fuel kind of industry that is in the uk how can we be disruptive of that and that means tackling kind of the insurance companies that means causing disruption at the banks that still fund fossil fuels um that means really tackling even at the like mode of production so um i've seen a lot of direct action been happening around blocking um even the kind of equipment used to extract oil and gas from the north sea from being able to leave um it's trying to be realized that what we do here has a huge impact all over the world um, and on the kind of proliferation of this climate crisis. And so trying to really like tackle that power um, from home and, and cause disruption wherever we can. Every time a report like this one comes out, it it can feel really easy to, to slip into climate doom. You know, it, it's too late. Uh, if we don't act now, it's all going to be for nothing. Why is it important that we don't give in to that kind of framing and you know how can we amongst ourselves uh help one another stay active and hopeful despite reports like this making it feel really difficult to do that i think we need to remember that the fossil fuel industry like wants us to feel like there's nothing we can do they want us to feel like it's hopeless and that we're doomed um and that our future has already been sealed for us like they want us to believe that we don't have power and that we can't change things and so we have to resist like everything that makes us feel that way. Um, and that doom so often just makes us not do anything. It's not actually that helpful. Um, it doesn't really kind of transform the world or change things. It just has us sit there kind of um, feeling a bit sorry for ourselves, I think, sometimes. And what we actually need to do is transform that feeling that is so real, that is grief about what's happening, um, into something that will really transform and change um, the world around us. So transforming that kind of doom into being active, like in a local movement, in organizing, or in lobbying, or in like really, really trying to push things forward. Um, and I think that we can do that, but I think that a way to do that sustainably is, is as I as I half on about so often, is just do it with other people. Like, don't do it alone. Um, do join a group. Do do it alongside other people. Don't um, don't feel like you are the only person who cares this much because there are so many people, and you'll be much more sustainable and you're doing your work if you feel like you are supported and in community and in relationship with people. That was climate activist and author Michaela Loach speaking to me earlier today. Let's move on to our next story. Boris Johnson has a very big day ahead of him. That's because there are two important events about to happen, and both of them involve the tarnished legacy of a former prime minister who's always had a pretty casual relationship to the truth, allegedly. First up is the parliamentary inquiry into Johnson's conduct. He'll be giving evidence to a cross-party privileges committee investigating whether the former prime minister deliberately misled MPs over parties held in Downing Street during the COVID lockdowns. That hearing is due to be broadcast live. The committee has already found that there is significant evidence that Johnson and his aides knew that the prime minister was in breach of the lockdown rules and that Johnson misled parliament over the parties. Now, the committee has published his written evidence. In it, Johnson says this. It is clear from the investigation that there is no evidence at all that supports an allegation that I intentionally or recklessly misled the House. The only exception is the assertions of the discredited Dominic Cummings, which are not supported by any documentation. 
There is not a single document that indicates that I received any warning or advice that any event broke or may have broken the rules or guidance. In fact, the evidence before the committee demonstrates that those working at number 10 at the time shared my honest belief that the rules and guidelines were being followed. So it looks like Johnson's strategy will be to argue not about whether Parliament was misled, but whether that's what he intended to do. And he also has a little bit more to say about Dominic Cummings, and it concerns the so-called bring-your-own-bottle party of summer 2020. Cummings claims that he told Johnson the party would break the rules, but Johnson writes this. I do recall a conversation with Dominic Cummings on the afternoon of the event, but he did not mention the event, let alone express any concerns that the event would breach the rules or guidance. It's no secret that Dominic Cummings bears an animus towards me, having publicly stated on multiple occasions that he wanted to do everything he could to remove me from power. He cannot be treated as a credible witness. It's not clear what, if any, work the committee has done to test the credibility of what is now said by Dominic Cummings, including his animosity towards me. If the committee intends to rely on his evidence, it is essential that his evidence is properly tested by the committee, allowing me a fair opportunity to participate in that process. The drama. It's giving real housewives of parliament. Johnson's dishonesty being in the headlines again led to this exchange between Tory MP Connor Burns and Jamie Driscoll, mayor of North of Tyne. Well, what we're seeing here is red herrings and distractions, a 500-page filibuster document. Mm. Um, he was at the parties. We know he's at the parties. Mm. He's been fine for being at the parties. Mm. Um, and we're seeing a lot of fancy footwork to try and divert this. But respect, the reality, that's not the issue. No, the, the issue is what he told is, Parliament. That's what privilege is looking at. We have a guy who's a serial liar, and I can say that without being sued. Mm. Um, we have parties that were going on where people are having sex in cupboards, throwing up, breaking kids' toys, all sorts of stuff going on like that. And as far as it's concerned is we are seeing the allies of Boris Johnson rallying around him, not perhaps as strongly as he used to do, um, but well, Connor, quite strong. Connor, he doesn't love you, mate. He's going he's gonna to betray you. Just let him go. Nothing, the relationship isn't there With anymore. respect, that nothing that you have just said is material to the Privileges Committee inquiry. There nothing. Will, there will absolutely be a process, nothing. That was said. That was a matter for the Grey report. No, the Grey inquiry. Will be a process, nothing you have said is material to what this Privileges is your tactic. You try to narrow which it is down. What Boris told the House of Commons. Oh, at least finish. And whether it was true or not. That is what privileges are looking right. at. It's very tightly defined, and rightly so. So there is a process, but. This is also about a wider issue about a guy who was in charge, who has covered up the Owen Patterson affair, who had the Chris Pincher issue, never mind anything about gold wallpaper. That's the and point. we still have people trying to defend him. And you're doing your best, you're doing a valiant job. I think if you but, were on privileges, you'd say, have to recuse yourself. But, and I'm not, because I'm not an MP, I'm a mayor. I just create <coughs> jobs. I don't, don't get involved in the Westminster bubble. But you know what? He's not going to back you. He's, he's not loyal to anybody. The Privileges Committee inquiry isn't even the most important bit of Johnson's track record up for scrutiny. Next story. Rishi Sunak's Windsor framework will face its first test in Parliament. That's the deal that Sunak managed to strike with the EU and which will replace Johnson's disastrous Northern Ireland protocol. It was part of what Johnson sold to the country as an oven-ready Brexit. Instead, it caused significant delays in the shipment of goods between Northern Ireland and Great Britain, that's because under it, customs checks take place at the Northern Ireland ports. 
Unionists in Northern Ireland have argued that this amounts to a hard border between it and the rest of the UK. And they've used the protocol as an excuse to refuse to enter into a power sharing agreement with Sinn Féin at Stormont after the Republicans became the biggest party in the elections last May. Sunak's Windsor framework promised to eliminate that hard border and significantly speed up checks. But because Northern Ireland would still enjoy borderless trade with the EU, it remains subject to some EU regulations. However, the deal contains what's called the Stormont Break. That allows the Northern Ireland Assembly, which creates laws in Northern Ireland, to object to new EU rules. Of course, the DUP isn't happy with this deal, and party leader Jeffrey Donaldson spoke to Sky News. We've been assessing the uh, Windsor framework now uh, since it was launched. Uh, I've already outlined some of the key concerns that we have about these proposals. Um, it was indicated by some in government that the vote on Wednesday was some sort of indicative vote of support for the Windsor framework. And based on where we are at the moment and the need for those key concerns to be addressed, we're not in a position to endorse the Windsor framework. Uh, and we've made clear that we will continue to engage with the government to have those concerns that we have outlined properly addressed. I think it's important that the UK government brings forward the legislation that will be needed uh, to take forward uh, any new arrangements. And we will want to see if that legislation adequately protects Northern Ireland's place within the United Kingdom. Uh, we produce some £77 billion of goods every year in Northern Ireland, and £65 billion of those uh, goods are sold within the United Kingdom. So having um, clear and free access to our biggest market is fundamentally and vitally important for Northern Ireland, and we need to get this right. Another group who've come out against the new framework are the Brexit headbangers in the European Research Group, many of whom were Johnson loyalists. They've released their own legal report into the Windsor framework. Announcing the result of that report, ERG Chairman Marc Francois began by quoting ERG Chairman Marc Francois. Commenting on the release of the legal assessment of the Windsor framework, the ERG Chairman Marc Francois said... I'd like, to thank, I'd like to thank the Star Chamber, chaired by Sir Bill Cash MP and ably supported by Martin Howe KC, Barnabas Reynolds and David Jones MP for their diligent and thorough examination of the legal implications of the Windsor framework. The Star Chamber's principal findings are that EU law will still be supreme in Northern Ireland. The rights of its people under the 1800 Act of Union are not restored. The green lane is not really a green lane at all. The Stormont break is practically useless and the framework itself has no exit other than through a highly complex legal process. The report also says this. We regret that the Windsor deal does not advance the post-Brexit sovereignty of the United Kingdom. It leaves intact the basic structure of the Northern Ireland Protocol, under which foreign laws interpreted and enforced by a foreign court will continue to apply to and within Northern Ireland. The Stormont break is a very narrow application in theory and is likely to be useless in practice. 
Given that Labour have agreed to vote for the Windsor framework, the deal is likely to pass with or without the DUP or the ERG. Still, whenever I see Mark Francois, I just think shame really has left the building of British politics anyway. Michael, are we ever actually going to get out of the messes that Boris Johnson has left us with? Difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I suppose it's important to be clear what's going on here. So when it comes to this privileges committee, which is going to be tomorrow, I'm sure there'll be some sort of entertaining clips from it. It is very specifically about whether or not he misled Parliament. Now, I think to most people in the country, who cares, right? The, the issue was that they told us, oh, we had to follow the rules and then they didn't follow the rules, right? It was, it was a very um, challenging, difficult, meaningful time for many people over those months and years of the pandemic and the idea that the people who were making the rules were breaking them like whether they knew they were breaking them or not we don't really care the fact was that they were doing stuff that none of us thought it was acceptable for us to be doing right so so the what matters there we know it's been confirmed right the privileges committee is deciding whether or not he misled parliament because if he did then they can sort of give him a sanction and ultimately if they give him a suspension of more than 10 days that triggers a recall petition and therefore, he might have to face a by-election in his constituency. And I think most people are assuming that if, if he had to face that by-election, he might not do it because, you know, it's not a particularly safe seat. So he could lose it and that would be humiliating. And this guy really cares about his ego. So in a way, this Privileges Committee, even though it's very exciting for everyone in Westminster, it's more about the future of Boris Johnson's career than it is sort of any, um, I suppose, closure, I suppose we could say, when it comes to COVID rule breaking or sort of a truth and reconciliation about what happened. This seems quite specific to me. Obviously, you know, I would like a Boris Johnson. I would like to see this guy humiliated and out of public life because I'm frankly very bored of him. Um, but I think it could go either way and it won't affect the fact that, you know, they shat on all of us um, over those years of the pandemic. When it comes to this Windsor framework, I mean, this seems like one of those examples where Rishi Sunak has done the technocratic thing and said, let's sort this out. You know, Boris Johnson was grandstanding over this. I can't be bothered to grandstand over this. Now, that's the argument which is often made to say, oh, this is Rishi Sunak, who is an incredibly, you know, competent, pragmatic, technocratic person. He's not like Boris Johnson, where he's just going to cynically, opportunistically take an issue which cannot be resolved and sort of try and get it to the top of the news agenda because he thinks it's politically helpful. Obviously, that's what Boris Johnson was doing with Northern Ireland because he doesn't care personally. Now, that argument falls down because Rishi Sunak was very, very happy to weaponize and create a huge political drama when it came to migration, right? So it just so happens that Northern Ireland is one issue where Rishi Sunak has decided to do the reasonably sensible thing um, because he's decided that where he's going to create this sort of pointless fight, although incredibly damaging fight, which also happens to be pointless, is when it comes to channel crossings. Um, so, you know, will we recover from Boris Johnson? It could take a while. Um, I have to say, I, I would... I, I can't wait to see the back of him just because it's all getting a little bit repetitive, isn't it? Yeah, and I guess on that, you know, I think we often, I mean, I I don't forget, but I think it's often not mentioned that there's, there's often this kind of idea that there's this like clean break between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak when we forget that when it comes to things like Partygate and a lot of the issues that that Boris Johnson is rightly under scrutiny for, um, for Rishi Sunak was like there, like he was next door, literally, you know, he was very much um, part of the Boris Johnson era. Do you think that Sunak's been successful in kind of shaking off the stench of Boris Johnson? Do you think he's recognized on his own pretty horrific terms? Or do you think that that kind of connection still 
you know, he's still kind of impacted by that legacy um, that Boris Johnson has. Uh, I mean, he's different to Boris Johnson, isn't he? So I, I think with Boris Johnson, he sort of had a unique sort of ability to think that whatever he did didn't matter and he could just follow his desires, right? That sort of made him quite unique as a politician. Some people felt that that made him more honest because he didn't seem to be sort of playing four-dimensional chess. He's just sort of like, I'm going to get away with stuff. I'm going to do what I want. He seemed like a man driven by his desires. Um, and I think that's what happened with Partygate, right? It was it, he, he is someone who doesn't think he has to play by the rules. Um, it doesn't seem like there was much strategic foresight when all of that was going on, and that's ultimately brought him down. I think Rishi Sunak is cynical in a different way. Um, I, I, I don't think Rishi Sunak strikes me as someone who is as um, committed as Boris Johnson is to saying, I am a special person who doesn't have to play by the rules. But he is willing to be just as opportunistic and cynical as I've said, and I, I think that in, in this instance is very visible when it comes to migration. Now, there will be some people who are more concerned about trade relationships than they are xenophobia, who will say Rishi Sunak, dramatic improvement on Boris Johnson, because when it comes to trade relationships, he does seem to be putting the economy ahead of sort of political grandstanding. So fair play to him. But I think to say that Rishi Sunak is an improvement, you have to not care about xenophobia, right? Because I think Rishi Sunak has been promoting that potentially more than Boris Johnson did. You know, Priti, Priti Patel was pretty horrific as a Home Secretary and Boris Johnson was very happy um, to sort of dabble in, in, in racism and xenophobia. But I do think that Rishi Sunak has actually upped the ante on that. So this guy who's supposed to be this technocratic, sensible person who puts the economy before everything else, like he, number five on his five priorities for the country is stop the boats. Now, I don't remember when Boris Johnson was prime minister, stop the boats being sort of so huge on, on various posters. So I would say we, we, we've gone backwards on that front. Yeah. And I mean, I always remember that one of his first, one of Rishi Sunak's like first announcements when he was running to be leader of the Conservative Party was about gender neutral bathrooms, which again, it like really, it just shows that he's not this kind of sober technocrat kind of thing kind of person and he's very much as invested in culture war stuff at some points even maybe more and you know the channel cr the channel crossings i think captivates the tory base a lot more i think the thing with the northern island protocol was like it was very technical it was very complicated it was very difficult to follow whereas like the channel crossings is in this sense unfortunately for the British population, a much more effective culture war, well, not really culture war, but a much more effective form of sort of um, drawing attention to and, and making a case for um, strong government in all the wrong ways. Um, what a lucky, what a lucky population we are. Right. Uh, so thank you so much, Michael, for joining me on what's been really the opposite of a slow news day. It's been pretty jam-packed. It's been a pleasure. Lots to talk about. <laughs> And thanks everyone for watching this evening. We'll be covering both Johnson's testimony and the Windsor Framework votes tomorrow from 6pm. So be sure to join us then. But for now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.